All right, we're excited to go, and we're excited to have the kids with us here today. We've been doing this a fifth Sunday, where we've had ages six and up, and you know, it's a couple good things. It's, it's a nice break for some of our children's workers. It's also a part of discipleship that we're inviting the whole family uh, of God in, into the body together and to be a part of um, the preaching of the word and, and the full worship service and some of the elements we do together. We want to be intentional uh, with this time. So we're glad you're here, guys. And, uh, and uh, we've got some coloring sheets in the back that follow along with today's message. So if you wanted to grab a kid's packet, it's in between those double doors on the way out there, and, and we can engage in that way. And adults can color, too. That's okay. Jesus loves you as well. Um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 today, talking about perspective. The words, will, the verses will be on the screen as, as, as well. Um, you know, I have a, a mentor, Pastor Larry, and uh, one of the things that he always said to me was that we are all a phone call away from life changing forever. We're all a life changing phone call away. Some of you have had those phone calls in your life. Um, I remember a few months ago, I got one of those, a potential one of those, from my mom. Uh, She called me and said that she had some scary news from the doctors that she may uh, have cancer. And I remember over the next weeks and months, there were appointments, there were tests, there were minor operations, there were many conversations, many tears, and and many fears. Um, The good news was, as as she shared this in our prayer request time last month, uh, that even though the doctors, it looked like all the tests were pointing uh, toward malignant, we can praise the Lord together that as far as they know, there is no cancer in my mom at this point whatsoever. Praise the Lord. Amen. Now, on the one hand, my mom and our family, we had to be honest about our situation, right? Like, that it's scary, and it's okay to admit that it's scary, that that there was a real chance that she could have cancer and that she could die. And it doesn't do anybody any good to paint a smile on our faces and pretend that everything's okay when it isn't. That, that we need help. We needed help from the doctors. We, we needed prayer. We needed the presence of our family, of, of our friends, of, of each other, of, of our God to be with us. But on the other hand, we were called to believe. Uh, to believe. And it was incredible to watch my mom put feet uh, to her faith. She had to fight, but fight to put feet to her faith. And to ask herself, can I really trust my God with my life? Can I really trust my God with my death? Do do, do I really believe that he is in control and that if it is my time to come home, that Jesus' finished work has really secured my eternity with the Father? And with tears of both fear and joy on her cheeks and on, on, on those of us in our family, she could say yes. Now, that doesn't mean she didn't have doubt through it. That doesn't mean that there wasn't struggle. But at the end of the day, I could say, I believe my God's promises toward me. This morning, we want to talk about perspective. The word perspective, the first part, per, means through. And then spect, like your spectacles, it's, it's to see. And so the, the, the word's perspective means how we see, the lens through which we see our different um, circumstances. Now, we can have the exact same circumstance, right? Like maybe you are facing a divorce or you're facing a loss of job or, or a, a potential um, health situation. We have all faced those situations and will continue to face those kind of situations. And we have a choice of what perspective 
What lens we will see that situation through? Now, there's a couple lenses we need to avoid. There's the lens of optimism. Optimism says that this situation will end in the most favorable, desirable outcome in my uh, uh, opinion, right? The lens of optimism sings the Lego song. Everything is awesome, right? I'm just reaching out to the kids, trying to stay relevant. Um, God will heal my cancer. That, that, see, I, I, I struck a nerve. Um, God will heal my cancer. God will mend our marriage. I will get that job. We will, I will find someone to get married. We will have a child together. My loved one will overcome addiction. The one that I love that is lost will come back and follow Jesus. It's this name it and claim it idea that is not biblical. But then there is also the lens of pessimism. Pessimism says nothing will work out, that the worst will happen. There's no confidence or hope in the future. That song, the song of the, of the pessimist is, it's the end of the world as we know it. Right? That's there. Or how about everything is awful. <laughs> everything is, that'd be the other way that you go. Uh, they, they like, now, of course, the pessimist uh, fancies themselves a realist, right? That's what they always call themselves and whatever. Um, but they would say nobody can change. That, that no, that relationship will not heal. That addiction will not be overcome. That sickness will not get better. I would advise the pessimist against a career in writing Hallmark cards, right? We don't need Eeyore saying, you're going to be all alone for your birthday, right? We just, that's not helpful. It's not, it's not helpful. Um, this morning, Paul wants to offer us a third lens, a third perspective, and that is the lens of faith that does not say everything's going to work out the way I want it to, nor does it say nothing is going to work out. It's a, it's a, it's a lens of faith, and we'll talk about that. We're coming to the end of Paul's second letter to Timothy. This is our last week in there before we pivot toward the Psalms for the summer. And we can get to these parts of the New Testament letters and be honest, right? Just like Leviticus, there are parts of the Bible that you tend to skim, right? I'm watching, right? There's parts of the letter where we're going, I don't know what Paul's talking about. To the, he's just, or it's kind of boring, right? To the household of so-and-so and to greet the people of blah, blah, blah. Like we just kind of do a yada, 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 grace and peace, and let's go on to the next book of the Bible, Right? Um, but what I want us to do is slow down a little bit this morning and, and see that there are some amazing and important truths for us to extract from this final passage. There, there are a couple things that I think we can learn this morning. The first one, if there's anybody out there looking for baby names this morning, um, this passage would like to say, you're welcome, right? <laughs> we, we've got Crescens, that's Tychicus, that's beautiful. I also think it might be a disease. Uh, Onesiphorus. Erastus, uh, how about for our, our sports fans out there, Trophimus, that would be cool, uh, Eubulus, and Pudens. Who's not going to want to name your baby Pudens, right? <laughs> What's he doing in his diaper? I mean, he's Pudens, right? That's just, I think, I think we could really go somewhere with that. Uh, and secondly, maybe slightly more important, um, Paul wants to talk about the importance of people. I love that he names specific names. Uh, Paul slows down and he points out the people in his community, in his messy community, specific people who have hurt him specifically and specific people who have encouraged him specifically. Paul is saying, listen, I'm not doing this thing solo. I'm working in the mud pit with specific people for specific people. You and I are called into community. We're called to do it together. But it's one thing to love people in a vacuum, to say, I, just, I love human beings, I know God wants me to. It's a very different thing to love people specifically. We all have the people in our circle that are hard to love. The person in our circle who talks too much, 
right? And it's been said, if you go, well, we don't actually have a person like that in our circle, and that's because it's you, right? <laughs> and I, it takes one to know one, so I can just put that out there. Um, the person who complains too much, right? The person who, the personality conflict that, that you have with them, just very different points of view. The person, when you think of them right now, you roll your eyes. If you were to see them at Fred Meyer, you would hide behind the stack of LaCroix, let's be honest, right? You know you would. But there are also people who we love dearly. There are also people in our lives that we can't imagine life without, that we would never want to get that phone call about. We're called into community with them all. Paul wants to talk about specific people. And then finally, Paul wants to teach us the crucial lesson of of the way that we see reality. And there is one lens through which we need to see our circumstances. Paul here is gut level honest with Timothy as he closes the letter. Gut level honest. In his darkest hour, like my mom, He saw his reality for what it was. Not all rosy, but not gloom and doom. Not through the lens of optimism and not through the lens of pessimism, but through the lens of faith, where he said, I believe that my God will keep his promises. Two things we want to learn this morning from this passage. First of all, Paul is honest about his circumstances. He's honest about his circumstances. Um, First of all, we'll see what he wants. What does Paul want? Um, Verse 9, he says, do your best to come to me soon. He's talking to Timothy. Timothy, I want you to come to me. Paul is in prison, and and he wants Timothy to come see him. He's all alone, right? And he wants his closest friend, he called him his spiritual son in the faith, to come and see him before he dies. And who can't relate to that? In our toughest moments, the people we need there are the ones with whom we are the closest. And this last year, we've seen through a season of, of isolation, through the pandemic, uh, we, we've, we've experienced the need and, and, and what happens when we do not have that community that we are created for, that we have taken for granted. Uh, when God created, he, he called everything good. What was the first thing in the Bible that he said was not good? He said, it's not good for man to be alone. We were not designed for community. Or excuse me, we were designed for community. We were not designed for isolation. He says, Timothy, I want you to come to me. And then he also wants Mark to come. He says, Luke alone is with me. Luke is like, what am I, chopped liver? Like, what, do, I not, do I not matter? Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Now, this is huge. He says here, Mark is useful for me. Now, there was, Mark was somebody who had been following uh, with Paul on his first missionary journey. On his second, as they were about to start their second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, there was a falling out. You know how road trips work, right? Where you often have a rift in the relationship. And Paul basically says, Mark's a pansy. He, He can't hack it. Get Mark out of here. And so Mark actually goes with Barnabas, and Paul takes Silas as he goes on his second journey. They have a rift. But what's cool here, what do we see here? He says, I want to see Mark. He's useful to me. What's implied here is there is or has been or is going to be this reconciliation that's happening in the relationship. And I love that he points this little detail out. Maybe he's found some perspective at the end of his life. Oftentimes we go through these trials and we're reminded of what matters the most. And that most of the time, these disagreements are silly matters of pride. That through repentance, that Jesus' healing work can bring unity to any broken relationship. And maybe that's a word that you need this morning from this passage.
Secondly, in verse 13, he says, When you come, Timothy, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, Timothy, do not forget my parchments. He wants his books, his parchments, and his cloak. Now, this cloak, very likely, uh, was his first century poncho, where there was just this hole cut out in the head, and it would drape over your body. He wants his cloak, and we'll, we'll see why in a minute here. Now, the books, uh, we don't exactly know what he's referring to, uh, but he, he wants, whether it's for writing or reading or, or some combination, he needs these materials. And as a reader, Paul, I totally get it. Like, for me, I hate being stuck on the airplane without my books, right, let alone prison. So I, I can totally understand um, being stuck. Actually, Jill and I, we can really relate with Paul, because on the airplane, I really want my books, and Jill really needs her coat, right? She's freezing on there. Uh, so we, we, we really feel Paul in this. Uh, but what I see here is there's this, it reminds us, just like this kid, the joy of learning, that Paul, until his dying day, says there's more to learn, there's more to read, there's more to write, probably sending more letters to encourage more people. That Paul, even, even though he says, I'm being poured out last week, right? I'm being poured out, I'm about to die. Until the second that God calls me home, I'm going to continue to lead and learn and love. And what a reminder to us, some of us might find ourselves in the third or fourth quarter of our lives and we're looking at things like, what does retirement look like? What does empty nesting look like? Whatever season of life we're in, we know that our physical and mental capacities will change, right? Second law of th- thermodynamics is going to continue, right? I keep lovingly reminding my parents of that. Um, but God has, he, he has us here on purpose until he calls us home. And he, he wants to remind us of that. He exemplifies that here. Verse 21, he says, do your best to come before winter. So that's one of the reasons he wants him to bring his cloak. Winter is coming. Right? Winter is coming. And if you know that reference, repent. That's all I'm going to say. And he says that Luke alone is with me. So you've got Dr. Luke. I need my cloak. Winter's coming. It's very possible that he's sick from these references. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that the, the situation is dire and he needs Timothy to come with his cloak and his, and his books. Now, why is Paul all alone? Well, he gives us three reasons. Again, what does he see? How does he see his circumstance? There's three things that he acknowledges is happening to him circumstantially. The first one in verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, we don't have details about Demas here, but what apparently has happened is Demas has chosen the things of this world over staying on mission here with Paul. And what we know of Jesus, remember when Jesus called us to follow him? Um, Oh, there you go, sorry, deserted by some. There are some like Demas that he's been deserted by. We know that when Jesus has called us, he said, follow me, and this way is not going to be easy. It's the road less traveled. The way is narrow. It's a way of self-denial, that you'll give up everything and follow me. The other path for us is the path of self-preservation. The path that puts ourselves first. And he says, that way is a 12-lane highway. Most people are going to go in that direction. Honestly, most people in this world are going to choose to put themselves first. Their worries and concerns, their comfort and entertainment. Guys, we have two options. To love Jesus or to love ourselves. We were made to worship. We will put something on the throne, either ourselves or Jesus Christ. Those are our options. So the question is, are we on mission for him on his road, or are we on our own? Now, when he talks about this love of the world, it doesn't mean that the love of the world is not doing the worst thing imaginable. 
that you must be murdering and stealing and spending time on Facebook, right? The worst things imaginable. That's not what the, the love of the world, Satan's tactics are usually much more subtle. That he'll use just kind of a drifting distraction. How easy it is just to come home after a day and just say, I'm going to spend the next five hours cruising Netflix. He can pull us away by, by the busyness of world. And how many of us have 18 activities this week with our kids between dance and sports and all and the house projects? Now listen to me. Those are not bad things, right? In and of themselves. But these things can become distractions. These things can become our primary focus that we get so caught up in the day-to-day that we look back and realize, man, I wasn't living on mission. <laughs> that, that I wasn't focused on the eternal. I was just caught up in the temporary. And so we ask you this morning, are you on mission or have you deserted God's people to do your own thing? Are you available for those in your life that need you to be there? Are you on mission with an eye toward eternity or are you just caught up in the, a victim of the now? He's deserted by some. He's also separated from some. Look at what he says. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Maybe looking for some dogs, I don't know. Uh, Verse 12, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Erastus remained at Corinth, and I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Nice little verbal gymnastic there. So we see that some have deserted Paul, like Demas, and they're off mission. Some are not with Paul because they're on mission. We see one who is sick, and some of the other ones have been sent out to go take the gospel where it isn't yet, right? that we see some of them are not with Paul because they're on mission for the very reason that they are on mission. Uh, Part of Paul's ministry was to raise people up and send people out. And when we do that, when we send people out into the world, it involves goodbyes. This world that we're living in right now involves goodbyes. I remember um, one of my first spiritual mentors, Jeremy Foster, he was a youth pastor here. He and his wife, Jenna, were moving to Colorado and it broke my little junior high heart. And it was so sad to say goodbye. I had my nose pressed up against the window as they're leaving. This was our little goodbye photo shoot in our house before they left. And I just remember being so devastated that that my first disciple was abandoning me, right? And and those of us in Alaska can really relate to that, right? This is a state where people come and go. We're used to goodbyes. Part of not being God means that we're not everywhere at once, Right? Part of living in this temporary version of earth means that there is death, that people move, that we can only be in one time and space. Right? We're finite, and we have to deal with that. But man, I want to be a church that we raise people up and send people out to the ends of the earth. I want to send people where the gospel's never been. I want to, I want to take our people and send to village Alaska. I want to go to some of the craziest foreign places in the world like Nikiski, Right? Go, go ye to all the world. Sorry, sorry, Nikiskins, low-hanging fruit. But that involves separation, right? When people go, it involves loss. It involves tears. It involves goodbye in the temporary, in the temporary. We want to keep an eternal perspective like Paul here. So he's deserted by some, separated from some, and then some are just haters. He's opposed by some. Look at verse 14. Alexander the coppersmith. Now, we don't know. He referred to an Alexander that they kicked out of the church in 1 Timothy popular name at the time. I don't know if it's, we don't know if it's the same Alexander or not, but Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. We don't know what he did, but there was opposition. It says, beware of him yourself, Timothy, for he strongly opposed 
our message. This guy was actively working against Paul and Timothy in the gospel of Jesus. But I love Paul's conclusion here. He says, Timothy, God will be the judge of that. Do not seek revenge. Let God be his judge. We will all give an account one day. And listen, maybe you have been treated wrongly by somebody. Maybe you've been hurt deeply. We need to be aware of those people. We don't walk in naively. There are times when boundaries need to be set. Avoidance needs to occur. But ultimately, we have to trust the perfect judge that is coming back. And he will make all things right. All things right. All things right. But today is not yet that day. So here we have Paul in prison. He's soon to be executed, and he's alone. And look at what he, he honestly, vulnerably communicates with Timothy. He asks for help. God wants us to be honest with him. He wants us to come honestly in prayer. We're going to look this summer in the Psalms that we bring our entire emotional palate to God as we are. He wants that, like any loving relationship would. He also wants us to come to others. We cannot be too proud to ask for help. We need that physically. I remember when my hips were at the end of my rope, came over to Mark Hutton, he's actually here today, he said, I need help, Mark. I need help. And after my operations, I needed help. I was a 30-something-year-old who needed sponge baths. What a humbling experience, Lord. (laughs) We also need help spiritually. We need people in our lives that we can come to when we find ourselves in the valley of the shadow of death, maybe we're experiencing loss from the outside or maybe it's sin on the inside that we need to confess. We need to be vulnerable with people in our lives. Come as we are to our God and to others. Paul is honest about his circumstances, but Paul is also, number two, convinced of his Savior. Paul's honest about his circumstances, but he's not a victim to the circumstances. There's a big difference between being honest and being a victim. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Paul does not blame the people. He does not blame his circumstances. He doesn't wallow in self-pity. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Crushed it with the uh, tenant undercrab. He's honest, but he ultimately knows who his God and Savior is, right? That Timothy is not his God. Other people are not his God. Circumstances are not the thing that he trusts in. He asks help from others, right? Because listen, one of the ways God provides is through other people. But he's not codependent on those people. There's ultimately one in whom he knows he can rely. And we see three things about Paul's Savior in these final words to the letter. A, we see what he's faithfully accomplished through Paul, what he has faithfully accomplished through Paul. Look at verse 17. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Metaphorically, we hear shades of Daniel there, don't we? See, what we see here, the lens of faith that Paul was seeing his his circumstances through looked back at God's consistent faithfulness. He says, when I look at my circumstance, I see my God. Everyone else had deserted me in that moment when he was standing on trial, except for one. My Savior was there. My Savior never left me. My Savior never uh, forsook me. My Savior gave me the strength to accomplish my purpose in that moment. And what was his purpose? 
I love this. He doesn't say that like Samson, he gave me strength to knock down the pillars and kill everybody. I didn't go Chuck Norris on everybody and take out the Roman guards and get out free. That's, that's not what he says. What did he say that he gave him the strength to do? As Paul stood on trial for his life, the very people who accused him wrongfully, right? That, that they, uh, he was opposed by the council, opposed by the guard, opposed by the Ro- Roman government. He didn't defend his own innocence. He didn't try to kill the guard. Instead, he spoke words of life that they might hear, that they might know how to be declared innocent before their God. He saw this as one of his last opportunities to do his job, to proclaim the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. I mean, that's crazy. How could that be the lens that you saw that situation through? There's only one way. He says how it happened. The Lord stood by me, and he strengthened me. I couldn't have done that on my own. That was the presence and grace of my Jesus. The only way that my mom could face a circumstance like that, the unknown, and have any semblance of joy awaiting those results was that the Lord was with her, strengthening her And the same Jesus that strengthened Paul in that moment is going to strengthen him and be with him again and again until he dies. And that same Jesus lives inside of each one of us to stand by us and to strengthen us. What he's faithfully promised to Paul. He also sees what he's faithfully promised to Paul. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. So Paul confidently clings to these promises. Remember what we said about promises? Look for the the word will. The lens of faith looks forward to God's continued faithfulness. Not only was he with me back then, but he'll be with me tomorrow. The word will here, he says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Now, I think it's so important that, that John Piper says it this way, when we are in need, when in need, when we are afraid, um, that we need to ransack, this is the way he says it, ransack the Bible for God's specific promises. That we need to open God's word and dig in. That we've got a, like a treasure hunt. Say, God, what have you promised me? Because, and I want to underline here the word specific God's specific promises, that we can only claim the, the promises that God has actually made in his word, right? Otherwise, it's not optimism. Well, God's going to heal. God's going to bring it to, to the fruition the way I see it. No, 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 no. It's not optimism, right? And God's just going to make it all be good. It's kind of this vague idea. But what specific promises did God make? Did, Paul, did God fail Paul when he was beheaded? Was he with them until that very moment? And finally, he's like, ah, I just couldn't quite get you through, right? No, look at the promise specifically. He says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. He's not promising that the evil deeds will never happen to Paul. They have. Read the book of Acts. They've happened to him over and over and over again. But what he promises him here is that he will not be thrown off course by those evil deeds, but God will continue to fulfill his promises and purposes in Paul and lead him all the way safely home. God does not save him around the evil deeds. He sustains him through the evil deeds. That's the promise. He made some specific promises to Paul in Acts chapter 9. He said, remember that conversion moment at the road to Damascus? 
what, what he says, you're no longer going to persecute my people. You're now going to take this message to the Gentiles, the good news of Jesus. And then in Acts 23, uh, when people are, were trying to kill Paul, God says, I'm going to get you to Rome. I'm going to get you to preach the gospel in that strategic center at the capital of the empire so that it spreads like wildfire. And he told all of his disciples, Jesus said back in Mark 13, when you stand on trial, just like Paul is in this moment, he says, I'm going to give you the words to say, I'm going to give you the strength to say them, and I will give you the ability to endure. And that's why with so much confidence, he could say back in chapter one of 2 Timothy, I'm going to suffer. The promise isn't that I'm not going to suffer. In fact, he says in, in Timothy, anyone who wants to live a godly life will be persecuted, will suffer. No, I'm going to suffer, but he says, I'm not ashamed. Why? For I know who I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me, the good news of Jesus. I will suffer, but he will guard me until the second that he decides to bring me home. You see, all of God's promises to Paul have been fulfilled. Paul has preached to the Gentiles, to the known world, and that doesn't mean to every single Gentile. That means to all the strategic centers in the Roman Empire, and that now the baton can be passed from him to Timothy and other disciple-making disciples. And here, in this moment, we see God fulfilling that promise that Paul is faithfully preaching the gospel in Rome to the very people who are trying to kill him for it. And that same God, he says, will get me home. So listen, the only thing that you and I can be sure of, the only thing that we can push all of the chips in on is that God will keep the specific promises that he has made to you and I in Christ. This is not the lens of optimism, that everything's going to work out the way I see it, the way I want it to work out. It's also not the lens of pessimism that leads us to despair. It's the lens of faith the lens of faith that says, I believe who my God is, that he is a promise keeper, and therefore I trust in those promises. So his promises to you and I are not that bad things will never happen, right? This is not the prosperity gospel. Romans 8, 28 says God's going to, will use all things for our good. He's going to use the bad things that will happen to us and the good things that will happen to us. He's going to use them all to do what? Verse 29 says to conform us into Christ's image. He is going to use everything in our lives to make us more like Jesus and to make disciples, others who will begin to look like Jesus. That's our purpose, and he uses all things for that. And it's all, he says, in that what my purpose in you ultimately is to glorify myself. And that's why he lands in, in verse 18, to him, to God, Paul says, be the glory forever and ever. Why all the glory to God? Because it's his power in us. It's his presence in us. It's his grace upon us that is doing the work. And therefore, since it's all from him and all through him, it goes back up to him for glory forever and ever. Amen. How vastly different, how vastly different would our lives be if we saw every circumstance through this lens? Another time Paul was in prison, he wrote in Philippians. And man, it's amazing what he says in Philippians. He says, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. If I'm here, that means fruitful ministry. God's got a plan for me. He's going to use all these things I'm going through to, to be able to point other people to Jesus. If I'm here, it's for your sake. But if I die, what does he say? It's gain. It's even better because I get to be with Jesus. I mean, what an amazing perspective. 
friend of mine, pastor and brother, Chris Ball, we've talked about him here over the last couple months, pastor in Anchorage, uh, has had cancer, been battling it for a while, and, and now we've come to the point where it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And man, to, to watch this son of God, he, he does not see his circumstances as God failing him. He does not see it pessimistically, nor does he see it optimistically. He knows that he could very well die. And at this point, barring a, a miracle, which could happen if God chooses to answer that prayer, he is going to die soon. But he's seen this as an opportunity to fulfill the purposes that God has him on earth for. That's to share the message of Jesus. He was sitting with a doctor this last week talking about end-of-life options. And the doctor said, so Chris, do you have any other questions? And Chris said, yeah, I have one more question. Do you know where you're going to go when you die? <laughs> I mean, that, you see what is on the front of his brain. He's not consumed with himself in that moment, but by the grace and presence of God in him, he's able to look at that doctor and be more concerned about that doctor in that moment than himself. Dying is not God failing Chris. That's a welcoming home. It's gain. You might say, Justin, man, I've tried to trust God. I've tried to see through the lens of faith, and I fail. I fail over and over again. Hey, me too. Me too. You're in good company here. And that's why this last point is so important. What, what his Savior is faithfully modeled for Paul, what he faithfully modeled. Verse 16, um, we want to see the lens of faith that looks to Jesus. Listen, the lens of faith does not look to ourselves, and it doesn't look to our own faith. That I don't ever want the application just to be believe harder. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of the one in whom we are looking to. And he says in verse 16, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. Does that sound familiar? Have we heard similar words in a story before? I thought about Jesus, who faced the same thing as Paul, where he stood at his trial and his closest friends had abandoned him. His closest friends had betrayed him. His closest friends had denied him. And like Paul, who said, may it not be charged against them, Jesus, from the cross, cried, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. To the very people who nailed him there. Man, my prayer is that my, that might be my heart toward others. Brothers and sisters, we, can't, we cannot bear grudges against one another, even when we have been legitimately wronged. They say that bitterness is drinking poison and, and waiting for the other person to die. But we're called to let it go. We're called to forgive. Why? When we for, Somebody has to pay for every sin. So we can try to force that person to pay for it, right? When we let it go, you say, well, what's the justice in that? Someone's got to pay for it. Someone did. Jesus' victory over sin on the cross allows us to freely forgive others because the bill's been paid. He says, Father, forgive them. But even harder, not only was he abandoned by his friends, in that moment, he was also abandoned by his father. He, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, God, have you abandoned me? Why, God, am I here all alone? And, and it's a good question. Why did God abandon him in that moment? Because what do we know about that moment? Jesus had taken on our sin. In that moment, he who knew no sin, became sin so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. That in that moment, the father had to turn away because he cannot be in the presence of sin. And in that moment, he was abandoned by his father. Why? 
so that you and I, in Christ, would never be abandoned by the Father again. This moment, this moment on the cross is how the promise came true that he will never leave us or forsake us. He will never forsake you and I because he was forsaken by the Father in that moment. So that he could say about our sin what Paul just said in this chapter, may it not be charged against them. So we said the point of this book is that Paul wants Timothy to endure faithfully to the end. Paul's charging him, keep the faith, Timothy, keep enduring, keep preaching Jesus, just like I have continued to preach Jesus. How can Timothy endure in the midst of impossible circumstances? How did Paul endure impossible circumstances? And how can you and I endure impossible circumstances here on earth? There is one way, and it's how he closes the letter. Verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. And what I love about this, he says, grace be with you, this final word, it's not singular, right? In the English, we have one word for you. It's you, right? He says here, it's actually, in the Greek, it was plural. So if Paul was a Texan, he would have said, grace be with y'all, right? Grace be with all y'all, you hear? Get out of here, right? He... What he's saying is not just for you, Timothy, but grace is freely available for everyone who's going to read this letter. They would have passed this around the church at Ephesus there. He says, grace be with you and with all those in that crazy church in Ephesus. And the good news today, brothers and sisters, is that that same grace is freely available, not just to me, but to all y'all, right? To all of us who believe in Christ Jesus. The presence of God is available. Our spirit united with his through the risen Jesus so that we can stand on the victorious, blood-bought ground of Jesus by his grace. So that when we find ourselves abandoned, when we find ourselves separated from loved ones, when we find ourselves opposed, we can see through the lens not of optimism that says everything is awesome, not through pessimism that says everything is awful, but through the lens of faith. The lens that can be honest with our God, that can admit that we can't do this on our own. The first step in growth is to admit our own helplessness, to stop trying in our own strength, to ask for help. So we're honest about our circumstances. God, I need you. I can't do it on my own. The lens of faith says I can't, but he can. And to believe that God's grace and his presence will not has not and will never abandon us. These are most likely the final words that Paul ever wrote, at least inspired ones in our Bibles. How does he end it? He ends with the word grace on his lips. That God would save a wretch like him. A man who started his Christian ministry, his, 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 his uh, career out killing, or at least persecuting other Jesus followers, as Saul until he met Jesus and was transformed into a Jesus follower himself that would help many, many others come to know and follow Jesus through persecution from people like he used to be. I mean, that's amazing grace. And if God can change someone like Saul, he can change anybody in this room. And listen, that grace is available to every single person that's here today. There is no one here that's too good for the grace of God. All have sinned. Who has sinned? All y'all and me. All of us, right? 
No hope beyond that. But listen to me. There is no one here that is too bad for the grace of God either. There's no one who has out the grace of God. You know who Jesus came to die for? All y'all. We don't know if Timothy made it to see Paul. We're never told. Paul wanted him. He wanted his closest friend there. We do know Paul most likely died that winter and was beheaded for preaching the gospel. But we also know that this was not the final word that Paul would ever utter, is it? I love the song, Jesus Paid It All. When, when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat, will forever repeat. We said in this series, this first and second Timothy, it's about life in God's household, that we have been called to follow Jesus together with specific people in a specific highly dysfunctional, Jesus-dependent family. We're following Jesus together faithfully to the end. And it's only through his presence with us and his grace upon us that we can, like Timothy, heed this letter's call to be faithful until the end. Would you pray with me? Father God, Father, we thank you that Jesus came that you in that moment forsook him so that we would never be forsaken, abandoned him so that we would never be abandoned, that we can claim all of the promises that you've given us in Jesus with a yes and amen. Lord, I want to pray for anybody in this room today that needs to be honest about their circumstances. Maybe they've been caught up in the things of the world, loving this present world. Not, not, not anything that we would say is bad that they'd get arrested for, but they've just been distracted, caught up in the busyness or, or just the lethargy of, of, of just kind of doing the daily grind. Lord, that you would awake them from their slumber and see that they've been called to something better as your children, to be on mission, to, to love Jesus, to be loved by Jesus, and invite other people into that being fully alive in Jesus, that they would taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, I, I pray for those who need to ask for help. Maybe they see their need, but they're not willing to come out of the shadows yet, to bring that light into, into the light, to bring that sin or that, that circumstance they're dealing with, to be comfortably exposed in that. Lord, that you would just give them the grace to take that next step, to ask for help from you and, and for others. Father, I just pray that we would be your people who faithfully proclaim the message, believing your promise, that not that we're not going to go through hard things, but that by your spirit and grace, you will enable us to endure through those things, that you'll use those things to grow us, to make us more like Jesus, and to help make others more like Jesus until Jesus comes back. It is all by your grace and strength. And therefore, Father, it is all for your glory. And all God's people said,